Hey, Moving Forward listeners, I'd like to take a quick minute to tell you about my new books. If you've been following the podcast, you'll know that I helped bring my dad's business into the 21st century with Poshmark. I've documented everything we've done so you can start a business right from your closet or expand an existing business with an effective e-commerce solution, even if you don't have a large marketing budget or social media following. The Poshmark Guide for Individuals and Small Businesses is now available in paperback and for Kindle. You can also find the Poshmark Journal for Individuals and Small Businesses with worksheets to help you manage your inventory and negotiate effectively and confidently on the platform. Both titles are available on Amazon, where you can find quick access links at bemovingforward.com or in my link tree, which is in the show notes for today's episode. Start learning and moving forward today. Hey, John Lim here. We're moving forward with episode 388, and today I'm going to provide some updates. This will be the June update episode as titled. It will also serve as the mid-season finale, so this will be the last episode for a little while. I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off, and I'll explain why later, as well as when I will be returning with episode 389. All right, today I want to cover three things. Number one, I want to provide a tech tip, as I talked about In the beginning of the season, I want each episode to have practical tips, whether it's a tech tip or in the case of the interviews, a writing tip from the writing series. And last week, uh, I had Ashley on to talk about Poshmark, and she provided some great practical tips. So each episode, I want to provide some actionable tips that you can use right away. Number two, I'm going to provide my own perspective and writing tips uh, that I didn't get to share on the writing series In the summary, I was going to provide some of my own, but I wanted to focus more on the guests. So that's why I'm separating that here, and I'm going to share some of my own writing tips. And thirdly, I'm going to provide a Poshmark tip. So there's been a new feature that's been added that I haven't been able to uh, talk about recently, and that'll also allow me to segue into what's happening with the Poshmark book And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then finally, we're going to conclude with the podcast. And I will, as I mentioned at the beginning, I will share with you when I'll be returning. Okay, let's start with the tech tip. And I want to talk a little bit about QR codes. And I've, uh, I mentioned this because QR codes have been around for a long time, but I think in the last year or two, they've really... Uh, become much more prolific. And in the last couple of weeks, I've had at least several conversations with people about QR codes. And back in 2015, during the first season of the podcast, I had a holiday episode where I talked about how to create a digital greeting card. And I talked about using QR codes, uh, integrating them into that. And back then, using QR codes, creating them wasn't as easy or accessible as it is today. So I want to talk a little bit about that. I know I've alluded to QR codes, I think in a prior episode, but I want to dive a little bit deeper into them. So QR codes, you've probably seen them. And if you don't know what one is, I guarantee you've seen them somewhere. They're basically barcodes. They're square shape and they look like ink block patterns as opposed to traditional barcodes, which are basically lines or bars. Uh, QR codes look more like uh, an ink block pattern. So uh, you can scan them and they'll typically do 
one of several functions. For the most part, most QR codes are links to websites. So if you scan them, they'll open up the website on your on your phone. Uh, I've seen QR codes do many different things. So uh, I've seen QR codes that will compose text messages or emails. So there's a lot of versatility. There's a lot of functionality with them. But websites are probably the most common used uh, purpose for QR codes. And I guarantee you've seen these uh, probably on buses, on the sides of buses, posters. We're seeing them more in commercials now. I, I see a lot of commercials where they'll talk about a product or service, and at the end, they'll invite you to scan a QR code to, to learn more. Uh, and also, I want to share some context. I've seen these more recently in restaurants. So as we're getting out of the pandemic and people are starting to dine out more, uh, I've noticed that some restaurants have replaced their paper menus with QR codes on their tables or on placards, and the assumption being that everyone carries a smartphone these days. So you can scan the QR code. It'll open up a menu on the restaurant's website with the updated prices, information, specials, that kind of thing. And I think part of the reason for this is that when you think about where we are right now, uh, with the pandemic still still ongoing, with inflation, with supply chain issues, we're seeing a lot of volatility in the prices of basic goods, staples, including food. And that's sending shockwaves into a lot of industries, one of them being the restaurant industry. So you may have noticed as you're going back to your favorite restaurants that some of the prices have gone up. And I think one of the biggest overhead costs for a restaurant our menu prices were the price of printing out menus. This is something that I actually learned during business school. So when you think about it, when you go to a restaurant, they hand you a menu, but the specials will change or uh, the prices will change every now and then. The look and feel of the menu might change. All of that is a cost. And whether the restaurant reprints that menu, and sometimes they'll, they'll print it on very nice paper and they'll have it laminated where some some of the really fancy restaurants, it'll, it'll be in a leather binder. Or if it's just a simple paper menu, that is a, an expense for the restaurant. And anytime they change a price, even on one item, that needs to be updated across every single menu. And sometimes that might entail the restaurant reprinting the entire menu, getting that printed out from a third party, or sometimes it might just be just... Uh, using some tape and covering up that price and uh, writing over or printing over the new price. Regardless of how a restaurant updates its menu, it is an expense. It's an ongoing one. So I think a lot of restaurants are shaving those costs out and also being more efficient by relying more on their digital menus on their website, which they can update a lot easier and a lot less uh, costly. And using the QR code so that uh, customers can get the, the most up-to-date information and get the menu from there. And depending on, depending on the restaurant, some restaurants may have even more functionality where you can order from, from that menu or you can pay your bill. So QR codes have a lot of functionality, and it, it makes sense that you're starting to see more of these replacing traditional paper items like menus. As I mentioned in years past, accessing and creating QR codes was not easy. In, in that 2015 episode, I talked about 
creating QR codes and scanning them using uh, an app. And that's what you needed to do in the past. If you wanted to create one or scan one, you needed to download a third-party app. Today, it's a lot easier to do both. And if you have a, a relatively updated smartphone with the latest operating system, for the most part, you can open up your camera, point it at the QR code, and it'll automatically recognize it and open up the website or prompt you to open up the website. Similarly, creating QR codes is a lot easier to do too. You don't need an app to do that. You can actually use Google Chrome if you use that as your browser, and many of you probably do. You can do it on your desktop or your mobile device. Just populate the URL into Chrome, and you'll see an upward arrow at the top right. If you click on that, that'll allow you to send the website somewhere. Traditionally, it's email or maybe um, uh, text messaging or sending it between devices. Now one of the menu options is create a QR code. And so it'll generate a code that you can download as a graphic. And this will allow you if you, let's say you create a QR code for your website, your podcast, your YouTube channel, your LinkedIn profile, you can put that on documentation, your website, you can put it on business cards. So there are a lot of uses for that QR code. So nowadays, your phones, for the most part, should be able to scan QR codes very easily. And using Google Chrome, you can create them very quickly for a website. I'm going to share a customization tip with QR codes. So QR codes are pretty cool, but they tend to look the same. I mean, they're all pretty much that uh, black square ink blot pattern. Uh, if you want to spruce it up a little bit, you can use a graphic design program such as Adobe or I like Canva. Canva is a great online graphic program where you can upload graphics and you can adjust them, you can create them. So you can download your QR code, upload it to Canva, and you can spruce it up. You can change the color. So I've seen QR codes that come in different colors. And one thing that I think is a cool customization detail that you can add is that you can put a little picture or icon right in the middle of the code. And for the most part, it's not going to affect the integrity or the functionality of the code. So you may have seen some QR codes with little designs or icons uh, or graphics right in the middle and shrunk down right at that center point. So you can use Canva to find a graphic or icon. So let's say you're a copywriter by trade. You can have a QR code to your website and you can take an icon or a graphic of a pen, a typewriter, or a computer, shrink it down, and put it right in the middle of your QR code to customize it. So you can do that, and it just spruces it up, makes it a little more eye-catching. Uh, I do recommend test out the QR code if you decide to do this. Just make sure that it works. You can just scan it right on the screen before you export it and start using it in your documentation and on your website. So that's QR codes in a nutshell. All right, let's move on to my book writing tips for this week. And I'm going to share two specific areas. Uh, I'm, I may expand on these at a, at a later time, but I'm going to start with an area that was not really covered that much on the book writing series. Most of the authors that I interviewed, pretty much almost all of them, are solo authors. In other words, they wrote their books themselves. Uh, with the exception of Rich Perry, who talked a lot about participating in a joint venture, and he also co-wrote a book as well. Uh, the joint venture, I thought, was a great, great idea, and 
basically the short version is, is that Rich Perry talked about if you are interested in writing a book, but you've never written one before, instead of writing a full book, participate in a joint venture. Find one where you can contribute a chapter or a passage. Uh, it might be an anthology in which you're writing a poem or a short story. But writing a short-form piece that goes into a larger collection can be a great way to test the waters. And I think that is an excellent, excellent way to get started. Rich Perry also co-wrote a book with his business partner, and that turned out to be a positive experience, as he talked about. But most of the authors I interviewed have written solo books. And uh, their first books were their subsequent books. They've written them on their own. If you've listened to the podcast or if you've been following my story, you might know that uh, I've written a couple of books. My first one, as I like to joke, was a coloring book, so it had more pictures than words. I'm not going to count that for this discussion just because that's a whole separate animal altogether. And uh, I, I recommend listen to my interview with Fred Brandon, who talks about writing a children's book and hiring an illustrator, because it's going to be closer to that experience. So... Just in terms of coloring books or books with a lot of illustrations, I, I separate that as a different category. And in fact, I have an entire mini-series on how to create a coloring book, even if you don't know how to draw. So you might want to check that out. But let's talk about specifically um, co-written books, because that's uh, where I went next. I, I, I co-wrote two books and I will tell you, unfortunately, it was not a pleasant experience. And it was, looking back on it, it was a mistake to, to do that as my next books. And uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of details on the behind the scenes and, and why and that sort of thing. I may do that at a later point. Today, I want to share with you some misconceptions about co-written books and some considerations you should, you should think about before you accept someone's invitation to co-write a book where you decide that you want to pursue co-writing a book, whether it's your first book or even if it's your second or third book. I think these are very important considerations. Number one, when you think about writing a book, it can be a pretty intimidating, daunting prospect. And you, you might be doubting whether or not you can do this on your own. And hopefully you've learned, if there's one thing you've gotten out of the uh, writing miniseries is that you have the capability to tell your story. And so many authors that I spoke with on this series, some were, are very accomplished writers. They've written multiple books. Several are currently writing books. And they all shared their best practices on how they got started. So if you're doubting yourself, you probably have more capability than you're giving yourself credit for. And as Rich Perry talked about, I do think writing a joint venture or participating in one is a great way to do something on a smaller scale. But when you think about a co-written book, it may seem attractive, especially if someone, let's say a friend or a colleague, invites you to collaborate on one. It might sound attractive because you might be thinking, well, that's going to be less work. I write half, the other person writes half, and uh, so I don't have to worry as much. And the idea that you might be working with someone that you know, that you're friends with, that your colleagues with, might sound like a fun prospect. I will tell you, though, from my experience, co-writing a book is not less work. If anything, I would say it is two to three times the amount of work that you're going to have to take on. Moreover, there are a lot of things you should weigh before you accept someone's invitation or before you decide you want to co-write a book. And 
I recommend think about all of these things before you say yes. And that was my mistake is that I didn't properly vet this out. I just jumped right in. I thought it would be a lot of fun. We ran into a lot of problems and ultimately it was not a good experience. So let me set kind of what are the three big areas you need to think about. First of all, you need to think about conceptually what it exactly it is you're trying to write. I think that's important because you may not have the same idea. You may not have the same vision. You might not be on the same page. If you think about, well, I want to write a book and someone else thinks about they want to write a book, even if it's on a shared experience or a common experience that you may have both ex- you may both have had or participated in, you may be coming at it from very different points of view. So think about and have a discussion about what this book is going to be about what perspective and points of view, and what ultimately is your point and message with that. Secondly, and related to that, your style of writing may be very different from the other person's. And I think it's really important that you figure out whether or not your writing styles and your stories complement each other. And ultimately, what happened with with me is that I, I agreed to write one book, and that was the idea. It ended up, we had so much material, it ended up being two books. And the way I see it, we would have been better off if we had just written individual books. And it was just a lot more time wasted, a lot more work, because I don't feel like our stories necessarily meshed well. And we had a lot of issues in in having our voices complement one another. The fact that it turned out as well as it did is credit mostly due to a great editor. So, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. So those are some considerations you have to think about. On the practical workflow side, you got to think about how the scheduling is going to work, how the workflow is going to work. And I'm going to say, I think it is important to come up and agree to a firm deadline. That was one of the issues that I ran into was that I wanted a deadline. My co-author didn't, would not commit to one. And this dragged out the process, in my opinion, unnecessarily. So I think deadlines are important. I think if you start a project, you should have an end date in mind and you should be committed to that. That's why I think it's better if you start by writing your own book. You know yourself, you know what you're capable of, how much time you can invest, you can impose your own deadlines to that and it doesn't impact um, uh, you know, anyone else. So I think those are things you need to think about. You need to think about the writing process. And then the third thing you need to think about is the afterwards. Because writing a book together is not the end of the journey. Uh, you're going you're gonna to have to talk about how the book is going to be marketed. You're going to have to talk about whether you're going to pursue traditional publishing or self-publishing. These are all big considerations because entering a co-written venture today together you're going to be pretty much tethered together. And I would recommend you see this as a business venture rather than as a one-time thing. And so think about that. Talk about that. What is what does the end look like? How is this going to be marketed? What's the tone of the marketing? And really make sure you're on the same page because if you're not, it's going to turn into a problem. And we ran into a lot of these issues. And it would have been much better if we had talked it out in the beginning. In fact, I'm going to recommend that you hash out everything, including what happens if there's a disagreement or if we don't agree on something or if we miss the agreed upon deadline. I think you need to formalize it 
with consequences and um, if necessary, uh, have uh, an escape clause or a termination clause. I think all of those things, treat it like a formal business arrangement. I think it's important, and a lot of the authors I spoke with talked about this, treat the book as if it's a second job, or in the case of some of the authors I talked with, your primary job. Take it to that level of seriousness, and both parties need to do that equally. I also think it's important that there needs to be mutual respect for each other's work, both in the writing, but also in the way the book is marketed. And if there's not, or if you feel like that it's not, uh, that's not the case, then I, I think you need to think twice about whether or not this is right for you. If I had had those conversations, I can tell you right now, I never would have agreed to to co-write a book, much less two. It was not a pleasant experience. And ultimately, without going into a lot of the, uh, you know, behind the scenes drama and details, uh, I decided, you know what, this, I'm not comfortable with this. This doesn't represent me the way the book is being marketed. And I, I don't feel comfortable having my story tied to this book, to these books. So I... I basically made the decision to dissolve the partnership, to unpublish both books, and I formally withdrew my story since I own the copyright to that. So uh, the books can no longer be republished. And for all intents and purposes, they're both considered permanently out of print. And um, you can do that if you self-publish. You know, obviously, it's not a pleasant thing to do, but ultimately, that's what the, the end result was, because... I really felt like there were significant problems that we just couldn't couldn't overcome or couldn't uh, resolve. So think about that. Talk about these things before you get started because you may find that there are several key things that you didn't think about that you're on different pages on. And if you can't come to uh, a mutually satisfactory resolution of these issues before you get started, then I'm going to just say, don't even bother. Just wish the other person luck and both of you should just pursue your own ventures or your own projects. And uh, I'm going to strongly caution you against making a co-written book your first book. Even if it's your second or third book, go into it very carefully and have those serious discussions. Now, that's not to say that a co-written book can't turn out well. Uh, Rich Perry is an example of someone who had a a positive experience. He co-wrote his second book after the joint venture with a business partner. And so they obviously had a very solid, established business relationship. I've interviewed co-writers in the past who have worked very well together. Uh, But I've also seen plenty of examples of co-authors who have had major falling outs over either the writing process or the aftermath of the book. So just be very careful with that. Um, All right. The other thing I want to talk about with books, I want to talk a little bit about my perspective and experience with traditional publishing. And this actually goes into the Poshmark book, which I talked about throughout 2021, a little bit in the beginning of 2022. And this will allow me to both share some writing advice and some writing tips, as well as give you the update on the Poshmark book. So um, one of the things that I worked on over the past two years was uh, writing a manuscript about Poshmark and how we've used it as an e-commerce channel for a small business. And that was really the major um, focal point. Starting a business on Poshmark is great. There are books on there out there that talk about this, but I really wanted to focus on how we used it 
to help resolve a problem that we had with a uh, small business. And it was an out. Of, it was really a different way of approaching e-commerce than using a traditional e-commerce platform. So I've done a whole podcast series on this. I've done a number of blogs. I wanted to turn that into a manuscript. I did that all through 2020. And then towards the latter half of 2020 into 2021, uh, I really wanted to traditionally publish this book. So I started sending queries to agents. For the most part, I didn't get any interest from the agents that I, I uh, reached out to. I had a couple that actually complimented me on the concept, but uh, thought that they were not a good fit. And so as we got into 2021, this was around February, March, I was uh, deciding at that point, well, you know what, maybe this, I, I'm not getting any bites here, so I'm going to go ahead and self-publish this book. And so then I decided, okay, I've got the manuscript. Um, I worked with uh, the same editor that I worked with previously, and uh, she did a great job with this book. And then I was getting close to ordering a proof copy. And literally at the 11th hour, I got an email from one of the agents that I had sent a query to who was very interested in the book and the concept. So it took a little convincing because I was at the point now where I was already deciding to self-publish, but she really wanted to get on a call to talk about it. So I did. And, you know, it was a great call. And I talked about this on some prior episodes where she understood the concept and the need for the book and thought that it actually had a, a good reader market. However, she was also very candid that this book would be a challenge to get a traditional publisher to buy into because it's a very different type of book. It's, it's a little forward thinking and one of the experiences that I learned from going the traditional publishing route is that the publishing industry really plays it safe, for, for lack of a better phrase. They really want to invest their time and their money in books that they can predict how well they're going to sell. And something that's new or different or innovative, uh, there's going to be resistance to it. So this is the type of book where I, I at least was able to convince an agent of its value and relevance, but convincing a publisher might be might be a hurdle. And so she was upfront about that, but I had a really good conversation. So uh, after deliberating over it, uh, I decided to sign with this agent who worked for this literary agency. And from that point, our focus shifted to working on a proposal. And that's one of the things I want to share is that depending on the type of book you're trying to publish, for nonfiction, specifically nonfiction business, you need to put together a proposal. And my friend Alyssa Carpenter, who, who wrote a nonfiction book, she had to go through this process. So uh, I spent quite a bit of time putting together a proposal, which is basically a business plan for the book. You talk about the, the core concepts of the book, why it's important, who the market is, as well as what is the marketing platform that you're going to provide. And that's something that I learned is that whether you pursue traditional publishing or self-publishing, you're going to have to do a lot of the marketing yourself. One of the common misconceptions about traditional publishing is that a publisher is going to do all the marketing for you. That may be the case if you're famous or if you're an established author, but if you're a new author, a lot of times you have to do a lot of the marketing yourself. And some of the authors I had on the podcast uh, talked about this as well. 
So I had to break down exactly what my platform was, and that included my social media presence, the podcast, uh, any number of things. So um, I, I spent a lot of time putting together that business proposal, which um, you know my agent and I, we went back and forth on tweaking it and making it really as polished as possible. And so that was a good experience. And then she went ahead as my agent, she would send that out to her contacts at the publishing houses, to editors at publishing houses. And this was sometime in late fall. Meanwhile, Poshmark, as you know from the update episodes, had changed quite a bit ever since the last version of the manuscript, which was around February of 2021, it added a lot more features as I've covered on this podcast. So I had to keep that in the back of my mind that this manuscript would need to be updated significantly. And so a lot of moving parts with a book like this. Uh, ultimately, what happened, long story short, uh, my agent sent out the proposal to a number of the major publishing houses, they pretty much all passed on the book. Yeah, we got some interesting feedback, some positive feedback, but none uh, were interested in pursuing this and taking it to uh, the next level and getting it published. So moving into 2022, uh, another thing that happened was that my agent ended up leaving the agency and got recruited to join another one. And unfortunately, she couldn't take any of her clients with her. So what what ended up happening is that the agency, since we're technically tied and signed with the agency, the agency had to evaluate each of the authors that were represented by this particular agent and to see if they could be reassigned to a different agent within the agency. As it happens, my agent... Uh, was not only a nonfiction agent, but she happened to be the only nonfiction agent in this agency that specifically handled business books. So as there was no one else in that agency who really handled that area, ultimately, uh, you know, it was decided that there really wasn't anyone they could assign me to. And at the same time, I was evaluating what I wanted to do. So we decided to part ways, uh, meaning me and the agency, and it was very amicable. It was done very professionally. And I had conversations with my agent. I had communications with the head of the agency. Everything was done in a very professional business uh, manner in which there was a lot of communication. There was a lot of back and forth. And then ultimately, uh, you know, we signed a, a separation agreement. And so uh, we formally parted, and then I was back to, I wouldn't say square one, but I was back to where I was before, having to think about what I wanted to do with this book. So now we're talking about winter 2022. I thought about querying again and seeing if I could get a new agent. However, I had done so much of that in 2020 and 2021 that I didn't know that I wanted to go down that well again. At the same time, I knew that if I got an, even if I got a new agent, getting a publisher that would be interested in this book, we had already tried with the big publishers. The next step would have been to target mid-sized publishers, specialty publishers, or academic presses. So there's a lot of different types of publishers. That's something that I've learned. There are a lot of different spheres. And a book that doesn't get picked up by a big publisher may find a home at a different type of publisher, like a niche publisher or specialty publisher. So I was thinking about all this, and, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know what? I've spent so much time on this manuscript. I still need to update it. 
at this point, I thought in terms of my time and the cost-benefit analysis, it would make more sense for me to self-publish this book. So that's what I decided to do. I spent most of the winter and spring updating the manuscript and adding all the new content and you know updating it as necessary. And that brings us to where we are now in, in that uh, I'm in the process of finalizing the book. I've got two beta readers who are also fellow Poshmark sellers who are reading it and getting their feedback will be very helpful. And so I really want to get this book out um, as soon as possible. So that's one of the reasons why I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off. Uh, that brings us actually to uh, a Poshmark update. So I do want to incorporate one Poshmark update that I haven't had a chance to do an episode on. This was in the last couple of months. That Poshmark has added a great feature. It's very easy to miss. But if you are on Poshmark and you have a closet, at the top right, you will now see a magnifying glass. You can click on it and you can run a search within your own closet. Now, if you have three or four items listed, that's not going to be that relevant to you. But as you start growing the number of listings that you have, being able to search within your own closet can be extremely useful. So I will explain a little bit about why this is an important feature for us. So we have over 1,200 listings. When we started, we built them up incrementally, adding you know 10 to 20 a week, several dozen, then several hundred, and now over 1,000. And one of the challenges that we have is that we not only sell the clothes on Poshmark, but we sell them in store. So if someone buys a garment in store that happens to be listed on Poshmark, right now there's no way for Poshmark to know this. There's no communication between the Poshmark platform and uh, my dad's point of purchase system at his store. I hope there will be some kind of integration in the future, but right now that's just not there. So we have to do this in a manual sort of way, and I actually go into detail on this in the book, but they basically have to let me know that a particular garment that is on Poshmark has sold so that I can go in and delist it or deactivate it or mark it as sold. So it's a manual process that we have to go through. One of the ways that makes this a little bit easier is that we tag every listing with what's called an SKU or stock keeping unit number. And I recommend you get into this habit early on. It's basically just a code number for any listing. And what we use is typically the style number on the tag. So if you have the sales tag on the garment, see if there's a style number or barcode number, use that as an SKU, or you can create your own and put it on a spreadsheet. The reason why I think this is helpful is because if you needed to run a search in the past, you had to search through all of Poshmark. There was just one universal search engine on Poshmark. So it would search everything. So it, it wouldn't be useful to search, say, red dress or brown coat because I would pull up several thousand listings. But if I typed in the SKU that we had in our listing, it would pull up either the exact search result from our closet or a much smaller subset if another seller happened to put the same information in their listing. Now, with the ability to search within our own closet, I can run a much more targeted search restricting the results. So I can pull up those results a lot quicker. Coincidentally, if someone does ask, say, 
Do you have a blue bridesmaid dress, you know, in, in this shape or this cut? I can run a search using more general terms within our closet without having to pull up hundreds of results from someone else. So having a search within your own closet, I think is a great feature, both for inventory management, but also if a potential customer is looking for an item and maybe you wanna send them some suggestions where they want some suggestions from you. So I, it's a great feature. It's one of the features that I had to add into the updated manuscript. So I did wanna uh, provide that on this episode. All right, and this brings us to the final part of, the, of today's episode. A lot of updates today, but I'm going to be taking a couple weeks off in part because of the Poshmark book. I really need to get this done. My goal is to get it out this summer and uh, get it get it out there. And, you know, it's a book I've been working on for two years now, so it's time to get it done. And uh, the other reason is that I'm doing some behind-the-scenes work, cleanup, and updating on both the website and the podcast. So some of you may know that I ported over to a new website in late 2020, early 2021, and most of the content transferred over quite well, but there are some inconsistencies in the website. So some of the links don't work, some of the formatting is a little bit off, and I've never really had the time to go back and clean all of that up. I, I need to do that. I really want to do that because I know some people start on the earlier episodes and I want to make sure that the content on the website is useful. Also, I need to do some behind the scenes work on the podcast as well. And so I know there's never a great time to do this kind of thing. So that's why I decided I'm going to take a mid-season break right now. So when am I coming back? Uh, I'm going to be back at the latest Thursday, July 21st. That is the date that I have set out. I've looked at my schedule. I looked at everything I need to do. The safest date I can say right now is that episode 389 will come out Thursday, July 21st. I may come back sooner. I may come back a week or two sooner. If that is the case, I will announce that on the website and uh, on the so, on my social media channels, but at the very latest, it will be Thursday, July 21st. So today will be the last new episode for a while. This is the updates and the mid-season finale. I'm going to be doing a lot of work on the book, the website, and as you go to the website, you will see some of these changes maybe incrementally, and, and some of the behind. And I'm going to be doing some behind-the-scenes work on the podcast as well. So. Anyway, uh, there's a lot of content, fortunately, and you should not experience any interruption if you're listening to the podcast, say, on Apple or Spotify. And if you go to the website, you will start to see some updates on some of the older content and some of the newer one uh, content as well. So all of this, uh, along with uh, working on the book over the next couple of weeks. Anyway, I hope you have a great week. Have a great weekend. I will be back in late July. Have a great summer. Uh, I'm hoping that I can do at least a couple of summer episodes. I know that last year the movie series was very popular. My plan originally was to do another one this summer. Obviously, with this midseason break, I may not be able to do a full summer series, but I'm hoping to get a couple of summer episodes out. But when I come back, I've got one or two interviews that uh, I'm excited to have air and uh, some great guests. Also, I'm going to be planning out what the rest of the season's going to look like over the next couple of weeks as well. All right, the write-up for this episode, if it's not out the same day as the podcast, which will be Thursday, 
I'm recording this on Wednesday, so it's going to be out tomorrow. I may not be able to get the write-up on the same day. It may be a day or two later, but it'll be at bemovingforward.com. All right, have a great week. Have a great weekend, and I'll be back soon. You can find the write-up for today's episode at bemovingforward.com. The views expressed by any featured guests are not necessarily those of the host, the program, or affiliates. Moving Forward is produced by John Lim and bemovingforward.com. All rights reserved.